good morning, everybody. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open to Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today, Galatians chapter 4. And while you're finding that, can I ask you a question? Or have you ever paid attention to how we categorize things, how we lump things together and, and move similar things and move them into family groups? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Before my wife and I had children, we had a dog, and that dog's name was Wilbur. Yes, we named him after the pig, and so um, and he kind of looked like that as a pup, so he got the name Wilbur. He was a Blue Heeler Sheltie mix. He was a great dog, but he wasn't just a dog. He was a part of the canine family. Kind of follow him going? We would take similar things. We lump them into family groups. The automobile industry does this. It's not just a Ford Explorer or a Chevy Suburban or a Jeep Grand Cherokee. No, no, no. They're part of the SUV family of vehicles. I used to have a job uh, working for a Marriott hotel, and we weren't just employees of the hotel. No, the, 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 the management referred to us as members of the Marriott family. We, we do this. We, we take similar things and we lump them together. On July 2nd, 1982, a man by the name of Larry Walters, he tied 42 helium-filled balloons to a Sears lawn chair in the backyard of his girlfriend's house in San Pedro, California. With the help of some friends serving as a ground crew, Larry secured himself to this chair, and this chair was secured to the bumper of his car by two nylon cords. Now, his goal was to launch and sail across the desert and hopefully in a couple days reach the Rocky Mountains. He took with him many supplies, including a BB gun, because his philosophy was, when I'm ready to come down, I'll just shoot out the balloons and I will come down. But things didn't go so well for Larry on this day back in 1982. If you know the story, after his ground crew cut the first cord, there was so much tension on the second cord, it immediately snapped, and Larry was shot up into the L.A. sky at over 1,000 feet per minute. So fast was his ascent that his glasses blew off his face, and he climbed up to 16,000 feet. And up there, he drifted for several hours over L.A. and around the Long Beach airport. And my understanding, as I read this account, that it was an airline pilot who first spotted him and radioed the tower this message. I'm passing a guy in a lawn chair at 16,000 feet. <laughs> How would you like to be the, the tower man, the radio operator that got that message? Say, What? Well, Larry realized he's not going to make it to the Rocky Mountains, so he started to shoot out the balloons, but he dropped his BB gun. And there he drifted. He eventually did come down in a Long Beach neighborhood, and he did get his balloons tied up in some power lines, but he himself was pretty much uninjured. Now, living in a world that categorizes similar things into family groups, how do we categorize lawn chair Larry Walters? What family does he belong to? The crazy family? The, the stupidity family, I, I'm not sure where we put him, but we do that. We, we categorize things. Well, we're not the only ones. As you read Galatians chapter 4, you'll realize that Paul is going to categorize Christians. He's going to put them in a family group as well. Paul will argue throughout Galatians chapter 4 that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you are a part of God's family. And if you are a part of God's family, then you are entitled to an incredible inheritance from our Father. 
Now, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and open to Galatians 4, and I'd like for you to go back a couple verses into chapter 3, starting verse 26, because it really blends well into the beginning part of chapter 4. Let's read it together. It says this, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now what I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were in underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Now there's some things happening that the more familiarity you have with the law and the Old Testament, the more clear this becomes. But basically what he's trying to communicate is, you know what, there was a season where we were like an underage person that was going to receive the whole inheritance. It wasn't quite ready for that just yet. That's his description of being under the law. But then when the father deemed it ready, the inheritance became available. And so he says in the very next, next verse, verse 4, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive, and pay close attention to this language, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but, a, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now, there's a lot of things there. You, you do need to read, read it several times. And like I said, the more familiarity you have with these Old Testament references, the better. But Paul's point in what we just read is quite straightforward. Faith in Christ is our adoption papers, if you will, into God's family. You are adopted into God's family by your faith in Christ Jesus. It was the same then. It is the same Today, because of what you believe, you are found righteous in God's eyes and a part of his family and adopted as children into God's family with the full rights and all the honors of his children and the full inheritance. Now, do you recall from our first three chapters of our study why Paul is trying so hard to make these points to these Galatians? Do you remember why? It's because there were some people that had come into the church and had confused them. And all these Christians were turning to what Paul calls a different gospel. He says it's also a false gospel. It's a perverted gospel, if you will. These Christians were moving back into the slavery of the Old Covenant law. You see, they had falsely believed that if they just kept these rules, if they were able to check all these boxes of things that God would look down upon them from heaven and he would see them as righteous people. 
So that means if they ate all the appropriate foods, God would look down and say, now you're my children and a part of my family. If all the men got circumcised, well, God would approve of them. If they celebrated the right festivals and they, they, they honored certain days and they kept the Sabbath day um, in its place of honor and they made their sacrifices at the appropriate times in just the right way, if they did all those things and checked all those boxes, God would say, Wow, welcome to the family. And Paul is like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You are sons and daughters of God. You are a part of his family, not by what you do for him, but by what he has already done for you. Faith in Christ Jesus. He sent his son to die on the cross. Three days later, he rose to life. The Lord paid the ultimate price for each and every one of us. And Paul is like, believe that by faith. And if you do, you will be adopted into God's family. It's just faith in Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. You can't earn it. You can't work hard enough for it. It's just Jesus. Now, Paul says similar things in other parts of his writings. One is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. He says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. He's just saying, believe Jesus. Believe his words. Believe in what he has done. That's your adoption papers. Legalism and perfect religion do not draw you closer to your heavenly Father. What these Galatians were practicing was a legalism. I call it the check boxes. I did this, 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 and this. And in doing so, they were falsely believing that by how good they were and all these things they did, that God saw them as righteous. Friends, that's still a challenge for many Christians today. It may not be in obedience to the old covenant law, but there is this mentality that I think Christians fight all the time, that we have to prove our worth by what we do. we got to check these boxes, and if we're just good enough, God will look down and say, now you're my righteous one, and you can be a part of my family. And Paul would say the same thing, does they? No, no, that's, that's not how it works. It's faith. Jesus would say it like this in John 14, verse 6. He said, and it's familiar to many of you, I know, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one path into God's family, and that's by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not by what you do. It's by faith in Jesus because he already did it for you. Now, what is overwhelmingly obvious in the book of Galatians, as you read it, and it really comes through in Galatians 4 for sure, that, that Paul desires nothing more than for these Galatians to turn their focus back onto Jesus. Their focus had been on doing things, but now he said, I want you to turn back to Jesus, and I need you to make him the center of your life. Probably the one verse that catapults this to the front even more than any others is back in chapter 2, Galatians verse 20. If there's any verse that you should memorize in the book of Galatians, it's probably this one. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives, where? In me. The center of our faith as Christians is Jesus. That has not changed ever it is the center of who we are. It must remain the center of all we are here at New Life Christian Church. 
Jesus is the center. It's Jesus that changes everything. It's Christ in us that others see. It's Christ in us that draws others to want to be a part of what the Lord is doing in our lives. Can I challenge you this morning with a true false question? When people interact with you, do they see Jesus, true or false? When people interact with you in any environment, do they see Jesus, true or false? Now, I hope you don't think I'm a morbid person when I tell you about what I'm about to tell you. That's usually preparation for please don't think of me as a morbid person. I enjoy walking through cemeteries and reading tombstones. Anybody else do that? Not at night, of course. But during the day, I enjoy a good stroll through a cemetery as opportunity arrives. And I like to read what, what people thought of the person buried there. And a lot of them are similar. He was a wonderful and loving husband and father. Or she loved her children deeper than anything. He served his country well. She served with distinction. There, there's a lot of similar things on, on tombstones. I was uh, listening to Mark Scott preach a sermon one time several years ago. Mark Scott, you might recall, preached here uh, a few years ago. He was also here earlier this summer um, um, as our guest speaker at our men's breakfast. It's that guy, Mark Scott. I was listening to him tell, uh, preach a sermon, and in that sermon he told a story about a couple of tombstones that he read one time. He said that he was driving down the road and he passed this cemetery and at the edge of the cemetery were these two large tombstones that stuck out prominently above the rest. And he decided to stop and look at them. And he said what is odd or what was odd about these two tombstones is that they were for people who had not died yet. So they had already purchased the ground and already had their tombstones placed and I, I guess we would say that is really good planning. But these two tombstones were for a husband and a wife, and the names on these tombstones read Strickland. And underneath each of their names, on each of these tombstones, in big, bold letters, read the words, Atheist. Whew. Under Mrs. Strickland's name, it also read, I have loved for and cared for many animals. And under Mr. Strickland's name, it read this, I am a very busy man, and I don't have time for this. Side note, that's no way to die. That's no way to die. Tombstones reveal something about the person buried there. It reveals something about themselves, or it reveals what other people thought about them. And so, forgive me if this sounds morbid, but if your tombstone was to be written today, what would it say about you? Would it describe something was different about you, and would that something be Jesus? I love Billy Graham's tombstone. Have you seen it? It's simple. It just reads, Preacher of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, you know what? If you could list off all the accomplishments of Billy Graham, you'd probably need 50 tombstones to record them all. But simply, preacher of the gospel, it seems fitting if you followed his ministry throughout his life. Jesus 
is the difference in our lives. That is what Paul is trying to communicate, that it's Jesus. He is the difference. And so for us, when our friends interact with us, do they see Jesus? Are your kids convinced that Jesus is in your heart when you hug them and you kiss them at night and you put them to bed. When your neighbors come over and they interact with you or they have those conversations over the fence or, you, or they observe what you're doing, do they see Jesus? When people follow you on social media and they see what you post, do they see a Christian person? For the Galatians, Jesus was diminishing but their legalism was increasing. And they had falsely believed that this religion, this, this, these legalistic mentality, that would draw them closer to God. And Paul's like, no, it's not. It's actually pushing you away. And Paul is eager, especially in chapter 4. It gets, it gets very personal. He is like, it, it, you are going the wrong direction. And if you don't make some changes here, and you don't make some changes fast, I, I fear that, uh, that you're going to be a lost person. That, that's what he says. Look, look at verse 8. Formally, he says, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning, your, turning back to those weak and miserable forces? In other words, what he's saying is that, hey, you were set free by Christ, and, and, and it's just Jesus, but, and that's where you found you know, your acceptance into God's family. Why now are you turning back to things that are going to rob you of that? that? That's what he's saying. Why are you turning back? He says, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. This is a reference to their checkboxes, their religion, their legalism. That's all he's saying. I fear, verse 11, for you that I somehow have wasted my efforts on you. Do, do you hear in Paul's writing, I know it's hard to do so when you read, this, you read emotion into something, but I can feel this emotion coming from Paul's heart that, that he is torn up over what is happening to these churches, these Christians in the province of Galatia, and he, he expresses this fear. I fear that you're going to be lost. I fear that you might be gone for good. I fear that I have completely wasted my time and my efforts on you. Boy, I tell you, uh, I, I, I hope I never receive a letter from anybody that says, I've poured my life into you and I fear you've squandered it. That's basically what he's saying. And I don't know, has, have, you ever, have you ever poured yourself into somebody only to watch them squander it? That's what he's feeling. Now, there are two other times in Scripture that I can find where Paul expressed something similar to this. He wrote to the Christians in the community of Philippi one time. It's the letter of Philippians in the New Testament where you can see this. It's another church that Paul loved. It was dear to his heart. He spent a lot of time with them. And what he does in that letter is he challenges them to stand out from the world. Don't blend into the world. Be different. Stand out. Hold firmly to God's word. And he says, I want nothing more than for you to shine for Jesus like the stars in the sky. And then he says in his letter, if you can do that, Philippians 2 verse 16, he says, if you can do that, then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. 
It's like he's saying, live out your faith boldly, and then I'll know, I'll know in that moment that I, that I worked hard and that it, it came to something and I didn't waste my time. It sank in. It took root in your hearts. It was the real deal. So he's challenging these people, don't make everything I did a waste on you. He says something similar in the book of 1 Thessalonians as well. It's written to the Christians who were residing in the community of Thessalonica, another church that, that Paul had poured himself into and these people. And he had feared that after he left that church to go on to the next community, that they were falling away, that somehow Satan had came in and come in and tempted them and they had lost their faith. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he expresses this to them. He says, for this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. That we wasted our time. And again, I ask you, have you ever poured yourself into somebody, poured all of you into all this effort only to watch them squandered away? Because if you have, then I think you are in a position well to relate to the emotion and the hurt and the feelings that Paul is trying to express to these Christians. Look at verse 12. He keeps going. He says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I was Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? Some translations in this verse reads, what has happened to your joy? Where'd it go? He said, I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over. Who are those people? It's the same people he's been talking about, the some people who came in there and messed it all up for him. He said, those guys, boy, they're very zealous for you, but for no good. They want to alienate you from us. They just want to drive a wedge. They want to get us apart from each other so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In other words, he's just saying, the time is drawing near. We're running out of time, is what he's saying. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. There, there's a number of things that we could focus on in that section of Scripture, but basically Paul wants to know what has changed. What went wrong? I mean, something has, has changed. You, you used to act this way with me, and now you treat me this way, and like I'm the enemy here. And I, I love verse 15. Like I mentioned earlier, some translations translate this. What has happened to your joy? He's like, when I was with you, you treated me like an angel. You treated me like I was Jesus himself. He said, you treated me that way because when I came, I had an illness. We, we learned in this, in this chapter that Paul had an open door to preach the gospel because of an illness that he was having. I wish he had gone into a few more details about what this illness was and how it um, opened the door and what it did to that church. But we don't, we don't know exactly what the illness was. 
We do know from other things that Paul wrote that he was persecuted severely for preaching the gospel, and he references how his body bears the marks of that persecution. We know that he had some other afflictions as well, and, and we, he, he lets us in that when I came to Galatia, he was suffering from something. Some have suggested that it was malaria, but that's just a pure guess. We have no idea. Others think that, that Paul was having trouble with his vision because of what he said in, in verse 15. He said, I know that if you, could have, if you could have, you would have taken out your eyes and given them to me. So it kind of makes sense where people would say, well, that makes sense. If something was going on with his eyes, and they would have traded places with him if, if they could have. There, there's a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul talks about the Lord gave him a thorn in his flesh, some kind of physical affliction that was troublesome to him. And, and he says in that section of Scripture, I pleaded with God three times to take this thorn away from me. And all three times God said what? Do you remember? My grace is sufficient for you. Was this thorn the same thing he's talking about in Galatians 2? Well, we don't know. But the point that Paul is trying to get across is this. There was a time, you Galatian Christians, where joy rang out from you. You treated others with the love of Christ, and, and there was something, but something has completely changed, and Paul wants to know. He identifies it as blessings and joy, and he wants to know where did it go, what has changed. This legalism, this religion that you're now practicing, this false gospel has robbed you of your joy, and Paul pinpoints the problem. He's like, you took your eyes off Jesus. And when you did it, it robbed you of something. I think one of the first things that goes when we experience trouble is our joy. It's hard to accept what James wrote about in the book of James when he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's a hard thing to accept. Life just got very challenging. And the Bible tells me that I should see that and welcome that with joy. That, that is very hard to do. Now, if you know what James was trying to communicate, he's saying, listen, trials in sometimes is just God um, 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 using that trial to make you into a more mature Christian. But it's so easy to get short-sighted when life gets hard and we fail to see that there's a bigger picture and God is doing something more. Paul is like, your joy is gone your eyes are off Jesus, and that's why it's gone. You know, my father taught me a powerful lesson about the things that we allow to rob us of our joy and our perspective. He taught me a powerful lesson that I've never forgotten. It's a lesson that would take years to appreciate. But when I was 15 years old, uh, I hit a growth spurt. I went from like 5'10", to six foot two in like a few months. It was like whoosh. And during that time of this growth spurt, um, I learned that there was some funky things happening with my hips during that time. So I won't bore you with those details. That's a very boring story. But, but I went to see doctors and, and uh, figured out what was going on. And, and I'll never forget, the doctor looked at me and he said, Joe, I just want you to forget about football. It's not a good thing for you to play football. Not with what's going on. And I'm going to tell you, at 15 years of age, my world just came crashing down. No football. Are you insane? 
yes, I'll admit there was tears right there in the doctor's office. My life just fell apart right there in that moment. And for as long as I live, I'll never forget what my father did next. We left the doctor's office, and he walked me across the street to the hospital. It was right next to the doctor's office, and he walked me into the room of two twin four-year-old boys. They were the sons of a family in our church that my father was the preacher at, and he had been up there the day before visiting this family. You see, these two twin boys both had just had brain surgery. And I remember standing over their beds, and, and I could see the incision marks all the way around their heads where they opened up their skulls, and how the doctors, the surgeons had stapled it back together. Their heads were swollen, every kind of tube and wire coming out of them into machines. There were beeps and whistles, and if I didn't know any better, I would not have known they were alive. And my dad prayed over them. And then he put his arm around me. And I'll never forget this. Right there in the room, he said, I know you're sad. But in the whole scheme of things, do you really have that much to be sad about? I think my father knew something that I didn't know. That my perspective was about to rob me of my joy. And he jumped in and headed it off at the pass. Like I was saying, it would take years of life experiences to fully appreciate what I believe my father was trying to do in that hospital room that day. He was not going to let football rob me of my joy. Paul asked the question, what's happened to your joy, Galatian Christians? Your perspective has changed. Your perspective's no longer on Jesus and the big picture and what he's doing and him crucified. It's on something else. And I think how that relates to us is this. When it's a woe is me, rather than God's grace is sufficient for me, our perspective is probably off. When it's a I can't go on, rather than I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, then our perspective may be a little bit off. Our joy goes when we lose perspective on the fact and reality that Jesus paid it all, suffered it all already, and there's a reward that pales in so much comparison to anything that we could be experiencing in this life. Our joy goes when we forget that it's the Spirit of God's Son who cries out to God, Abba, Father, and is living inside of each of us and gives us the strength to overcome and conquer anything that comes down the road at us. Our joy goes when we forget that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. These Galatians had lost their joy because they took their eyes off of the one who is the reason for all the joy in the world, Jesus Christ. If you were to read the rest of Galatians 4, you're going to see that Paul reasons with these Galatians to change their perspective 
Stop following this legalistic path. Stop checking the boxes and turn their hearts and their focus and their perspective squarely on Jesus Christ. And I believe that's a great reminder for us today. Is your perspective, is your vision, is your sight set squarely on Jesus? Or is it a little bit off? Paul's like, it's just Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. Just Jesus.